This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. It is COVID-19 related with news that Italy has shut down that country and areas in the United States have also banned large scale public events. The hot question of the day, do you think the B.C. government should ban large public gatherings in order to reduce the spread of COVID-19? You can vote yes, be proactive or no. It's an overreaction. Head on over to Twitter at CKNW, at Jill Reports, cast your ballot. You can also vote on the buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. Following the news yesterday, the first death in relation to COVID-19 was recorded. Unfortunately, an 80-year-old man, a resident of the Lynn Valley Care Center, passed away after being diagnosed as positive with the virus. Uh, Following that news, we're curious as to what care homes are doing to prevent further spread, given that the residents in care homes would be some of the most vulnerable people in our population. Well, Daniel Fontaine is the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association and joins us now on the line. Daniel, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me on, Jill. Um, I, I know the, the care home in North Vancouver is not one of your centres, but it's got to be resonating throughout the long-term care community that this has happened and that we do have these confirmed cases and that death. Yeah, there is very much uh, concern uh, throughout uh, the province, actually, within both the care staff, uh, the operators. uh, You know, something like COVID-19, which we know can be very deadly if it comes into a long-term care setting, is something that we obviously are working tirelessly to prevent from going into any uh, care home. And so that's uh, what's happening right now. There's a lot of uh, uh, kind of enhanced protocols around things like a deep cleaning of uh, surfaces that get frequently touched uh, to making sure that people are, who are coming in and out of care homes uh, are, uh, if they're in any way symptomatic, we're asking them not to come in. And uh, in fact, uh, telling even those uh, healthy British Columbians who would uh, perhaps like to go visit grandma or grandpa in the next few weeks to perhaps uh, just hold off uh, for the time being uh, until we can get uh, things stabilized within the care sector throughout the province. Is it different then because in a a normal year when we're just in flu season, I mean, people are told if you haven't had a flu shot, you have to wear a mask if you're Mm -hmm. visiting. uh, Again, if you have symptoms of sickness to stay away, is Mm -hmm. is it different than what you would do in, in a normal flu situation? No, Jill, it's actually very similar to influenza. So um, in the past, if you look at media reports, when an influenza outbreak uh, happens at a care home, you'll often have many people who will pass away as a result of influenza. The difference with COVID-19, there's a couple things. So first of all, the uh, mortality rate with COVID-19 is considerably higher than the flu. So uh, there'll be more people who would pass away if uh, they contract COVID-19 in a care setting. Secondly, we have never, uh, as far as I can see, going back you know, at least a couple decades, we've never had an experience where we've had a surge demand uh, from the public of things things like medical supplies at the same time that we critically need them in care settings. So you've got this perfect storm of the public buying things like uh, surgical masks and sanitizer and those types of things. And at the same time, those are in critical uh, need in a care settings. So that's unique to this particular virus and the reaction to this virus. And that's why we've been telling the public, unless it's medically necessary, uh, please don't purchase uh, medical supplies and leave those for the doctors and nurses and, and care aides and clinicians who need to protect our most vulnerable population, which, as you said, are those people who are in long-term care settings across B.C.
And in the case in North Vancouver, we know that a care worker at the Lynn Valley Centre was patient 21, was the first mm-hmm. community transfer. And I, I think unless it has changed, I don't think we still know exactly where how that person was infected. But what does that mean for staff members at your care facilities in that, again, the protocol very similar to a normal flu year. In a normal mm-hmm. flu year, a staff member can get a flu shot and have some protection that way. But in this case, nobody has protection against this virus. Yeah, so the flu vaccination does absolutely reduce uh, the potential uh, spread of influenza within care homes, and that's why we encourage all staff to uh, to take that on as something as a way of uh, part of our preventative uh, kind of measures. With COVID-19, you're correct, there is no vaccination and there likely won't be for a period of about 18 months is what we're being told. So we're working uh, outside the parameters of having a vaccination as a prevention protocol. But what we can do, we know that if we, with proper medical supplies and also proper procedures around ensuring that people are quarantined if they're exhibiting symptoms, etc., we will follow all the identical protocols that we would with an influenza outbreak. And we know that that can help prevent and help to contain um, that on-site and also help to prevent it from arriving and coming into a care setting. So notwithstanding the fact that we don't have that additional, additional tool in our toolkit of the vaccination, there still are plenty of things we can do to help prevent uh, COVID entering into another long-term care home. Uh, is there any move as far as uh, with care aides and people that work in those positions? It's not uncommon for care aides and other healthcare workers to work at multiple different locations. Is there anything to try and stop that movement at this point? I, from what I understand, uh, for the folks who are working at the Lynn Valley Care Centre, there has been a, a, a provision made to advise them to not be uh, working for at least, I think, a period of a couple of weeks in other care settings to help prevent that uh, possible transmission. Uh, it's something that we are talking about. In fact, we established uh, over the weekend uh, and we ha- held our first meeting this morning of uh, a sector uh, COVID-19 working group. And that working group is now in direct dialogue with Ministry of Health officials around issues like this and around whether or not there has to be additional protocols in place given that uh, we don't have a vaccination and that uh, there is a potential threat for that to be uh, spread from care home to care home. So at the moment, beyond what has been issued as a, as a message to the staff that worked at Lynn Valley, there is no additional protocols uh, being put in place uh, province-wide, but that could change uh, this afternoon, as quickly as this afternoon, depending on what the provincial health office uh, uh, indicates to us. What would that do as far as a strain on staffing if suddenly people that work, say, a couple of part-time jobs and work mm-hmm. in different facilities can't do that anymore? Jill, I can tell you in all honesty that we were already facing a health human resources crisis in this province. You've heard me talk about this for the better part of about three years now. We've had staff shortages in the interior health and on Vancouver Island, and that's why we've been pleading to increase the total number of care staff uh, across the province because we, in good times, struggle uh, to get enough care staff to be able to work uh, throughout the province. So as you can appreciate, uh, given what's happened with COVID-19, given the request for staff to stay home if they're in any way symptomatic and we're telling them not to come into the care setting, um, this is going to be, it will put the system in a big strain if it hasn't already, just given that, um, you know, there are a lot of people who are going to have to stay at home and be quarantined, self-quarantined for a period of up to two weeks. Um, it's going to be a challenge for us, I tell you, in the coming weeks. And I do feel for the, the staff that are there, the ones that are working and coming into work and having to, to do double shifts and work overtime, it's, uh, it's putting a huge pressure on everyone. And I know it will have, 
you know, a big mental health impact as well for many people who have to go through this over the next uh, month or two. And I guess the kind of the irony there too is there are going to be family members who, if they think that perhaps their loved ones aren't getting uh, that that level of care, and again, not not a, not a slag or anything against mm-hmm. the healthcare workers, but if there simply aren't the people there to do it, there are going to be family members who want to go out of their way to spend more time in the care home and again come in to help their loved ones. Yeah, it does all compound on itself, and we're also hearing reports of people who want to take you know, people out of the care setting and bring them back home. And again, we have to be really careful. Um, These are very vulnerable, frail uh, individuals, many with uh, compromised immune systems. And uh, by exposing them inadvertently within the, potentially within the community to COVID-19 could be equally just as, you know, uh, as concerning. So uh, it it is stressful. I I don't deny that. And, And I know everyone's doing their best and we're trying to with with the staff that we've got make sure that we provide the best care and ensure that the care homes are are safe and and are under the protocols that we put in place to prevent uh, infection uh, spread and uh, but we're asking uh, that's why we're asking people to perhaps uh, postpone a visit um, and perhaps uh, if they can stay out of the care setting that will reduce the amount of uh, work that care staff have to do in terms of making sure that people who are entering and exiting are not uh, going to inadvertently bring in COVID-19. All right, we'll leave it there. Daniel, thanks so much. Look forward, and I'm sure we'll be getting some more updates from you, but thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Daniel Fontaine is the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Well, as you know, yesterday, Italy, the entire country, was put on lockdown because of concerns about the spread of COVID-19. So what exactly does that look like? What? How are people responding? We heard about long lines at some grocery stores, people lining up to try and get enough food and supplies if they had to stay in their homes. Let's check in with Eric Reguli, European Bureau Chief with the Globe and Mail. He joins us on the line. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Uh, Where are you and what's happening? I'm in Rome. I'm locked down in Rome. I'm not happy about being locked down in Rome, but I understand that it's necessary to be quarantined. Uh, We're under a lot of restrictions. Uh, We can go out, you know, we can wander around, we can shop, but that's about it. Really, we can't uh, we can't do anything else. And even shopping is a chore because you got to line up outside. So you know, most Roman stores are quite small; they're mom and pop operations. You know, there should never be more than one or two people on these in these stores at a time to maintain this one meter distance. So people are lined up outside. When one person comes out, another person goes in. I mean, it's quite it's civilized but slow. Hmm. And and so where you are then in in your home, do you have enough supplies to last if you don't have to go out and go to the stores? No, I mean, no, we haven't. Listen, there's no panic buying in Italy. And Italy has got a glut of food all the time. and No one starves in Italy. Um, I haven't seen any hoarding um, like, like you've seen in, you know, there's crazy pictures of Walmart in the United States where people are buying, you know, 50-year supply of toilet paper. Um, it's, it's not seeing that here. The stores are open. You can go in, you know, you can get home deliveries. Uh, it, but that's not the problem. The problem is you, there's no, you can't do anything. You, you basically have to stay indoors. You can go out to shop. Um, you can go up to, to walk around, but you can't leave the city. I mean, I can't drive up to Tuscany cause I want to be in the sunshine. Um, can't do that. Uh, you mentioned the one meter rule. So that's the rule that people, when you are out and about, you need to stay away from others. Do you, from what you can tell, are people uh, obeying that rule? 
Um, yes, for the most part. It's an interesting question because uh, I, I didn't think Italians would because Italians are are very sociable. Uh, there, it's Rome, like all Italian cities. It's a lot of people in a small space. It's very. These cities are very congested. There's not a lot of sense of you know personal distance. Uh, Italians don't mind crowds. They live in crowds. So I thought that this one meter rule would be pretty much ignored, but it seems to be largely obeyed, um, especially among the older people, because, you know, the numbers here, uh, Jill, are scary. We, we just got the new numbers. Um, overnight, um, almost 1,000 new cases, taking up to 10,150, and 168 new deaths, 168. I think Canada's had one, taking the total number of deaths in Italy to 631, which is the second highest in the world. So, I mean, it's it's bloody serious here, and it's 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 uh, the older people are especially worried about it. So yeah, they're they're taking the one meter distance uh, seriously. And what's the feeling like if if you're looking out on the street or you you've gone out to the grocery stores or what what is it? Can you describe kind of what it looks like under this lockdown? Yeah, it's it's surreal. I look look at the streets are not empty, um, but there's very few tourists around. I'd say maybe a quarter to a fifth of what they what they normally the streets are a quarter to a, a fifth of what their normal traffic would be um and you know this is shocking to us because rome is you know is a very crowded social buzzy city you know and to see largely empty streets to see you know no one at the coliseum or the spanish steps there are very few people at the pantheon st peter's square uh, at the Vatican was is entirely empty. I mean, they just they just shut it down, um, and it, it does look like you know a neutron bomb's gone off. Well, exactly, because I think if anybody who's been there would remember this or even seen pictures or movies, it's bustling with people in cafes and restaurants and on the streets. That's kind of the normal, uh, even for this time of year before the the huge summer tourism season. That would be a normal scene on any of those streets. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's you know, one of the reasons why people love Rome because it's it's alive. You know, it's not just the history and the culture. It's just the street life is just so much, so fun, so compelling. And you know, I mean, within probably two hundred meters of my house, there's there's got to be seven or eight cafes and bars and dozens of restaurants. And you know, um, you know, most of them are, are are closed. You can't open restaurants in the night. Some are some are open in the daytime, but you still got to keep that space. You know, they can't fill tables. Mm. Uh, so, so what do you do then as far as, uh, do you get the sense that, are people okay with this? Like you said, the numbers have jumped overnight to 631 deaths in that in that country. Are people okay with this because they realize that the reason why it's happening? Or do people think that it's an overreaction? Um. At first, I thought, last week when I when they closed down northern Italy, a lot of Italians thought it was an overreaction. But then they they saw what's happening in China, the the these severe uh, isolation efforts in China seem to be working. I'm just looking at the latest tally here. So in the last 24 hours, the number of new cases in China, which has a billion and a half people, was only 26. I mean, think of that. Only 26. Italy was almost a thousand. Um, so uh, the Italians realize that the, the Chinese are finally getting this under control, you know, more than two months later by, by 
uh, locking, isolating cities. Um, and so Italy is now isolated. You, you saw even the Austrians, uh, I don't know if you saw this, Austria closed its um, border with Italy. So you, you cannot fly from Italy to Austria. You can't drive and you can't get on, on trains. I mean, I, I can't remember whenever this has happened because, you know, most of Europe is a, is a there's no borders. It's right. a passport-free zone. So, um you know, uh, Europe is very worried about uh, Italian transmission to to other countries. So at this point, is it still April 3rd is the date and then they'll re-examine or we should get more information as far as the lockdown? Yeah, until April 3rd. Uh, I, the reason I think, uh, Jill, that is because the incubation period is about two to three weeks. So starting yesterday, so today was the first day of lockdown. You add three weeks and it takes you to about April 3rd, at which point, you know, they'll reassess. Um, you know, if people obey this, this one meter rule and stay indoors, I think there's a pretty good chance um, it'll be reopened. But now those 11 towns up north that were in strict quarantine, those are the first 11 towns, most of them near Milan. It was, the collective population was 50,000. They've, they've reopened those towns um, right. so they, they can, you know, uh, wander around. So we're hopeful. I mean, I'm going to go crazy, you know, not, you know sitting in this uh, apartment for three weeks unless it happens. Yeah, and I think a lot of people can relate. Uh, Eric, we will leave it there. My guess is we'll try and uh, touch base with you again over the next few days. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Okay, anytime, Jill. Bye-bye. Okay, Eric Reguli. He is the European Bureau Chief at the Globe and Mail on the line from Rome. Thanks for being with us. Well, before the break, we were talking about the lockdown in Italy. We were chatting with the European Bureau Chief at the Globe and Mail, who is based in Rome. He is under quarantine in that lockdown. One of the big questions, though, is will these drastic measures work? We've seen in China a slowdown of the spread of the virus Will it work that the lockdown in Italy and other places that are banning large gatherings, uh, people who are uh, more in tune with what's happening, will that actually stop the spread of this virus? Well, let's bring in Maciek Bauni, Associate Professor of Biology at the Pennsylvania State University. Maciek, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me on. Uh, you've written about this and tried to look at it, the numbers uh, that we have as far as infections, uh, the number of deaths. Are we able to take that information and get a better idea about where things might go? So where things go does depend largely on us, as you just outlined to your listeners. If we put in very strict and very, you know, even extreme measures to limit our social contacts, to cancel events, we will be able to slow down, probably not stop, but we will be able to slow down the spread of the epidemic. And that's really good because when you slow it down, you do several things. You reduce the total number of people that are infected. You reduce the strain on the healthcare system and you allow more time for a vaccine to get ready. So do you think then, uh, given that, that we're doing enough? Well, this, uh, every country has its own story. I mean, I'm based in the U.S., and I don't think we're doing enough right now. We've, um, for example, we've had uh, some parade cancellations. Boston canceled its St. Patrick's Day parade, but New York and Chicago, as of this morning, hadn't done so. So every place is responding differently. And I don't know what sort of serious events it's going to take to have everyone realize that working from home, canceling events, limiting our social contacts, 
This is the only way to take each of us out as a link in a transmission chain to help slow the whole thing down. And you mentioned, too, in the the response from the United States, there has been some question as well, even uh, where we are in B.C., just south of the border in Washington state, there have been several deaths in one long-term care facility. I think there's a new death today at another facility. Uh, There's been questions there, officials saying they don't have the number of testing kits they need, and it does seem like more could have been done in, in those scenarios. That's right. So sending out the testing kits in the U.S. happened too late. So at a point where there were likely already hundreds of uh, cases inside the country. And it's also important to remember that there were regulations on which types of uh, cases should be tested, which I don't think was the right approach in a scenario like this, where you have an emerging epidemic that's potentially dangerous, especially to older individuals. uh, Physicians should feel free to test an individual, even if there's a you know, a hunch that that older individual may be at risk of having coronavirus and thus may be at risk for progressing to something serious like pneumonia. We talk a lot about, or we're talking to health officials uh, in BC, our provincial, our chief medical officer is a doctor who dealt with SARS. Uh, She's worked with Ebola. She's worked with pandemics in the past and talks on what uh, really draws from those experiences, saying that what we learned from that, that information, that knowledge is being put into play here. Uh, Do you think we are, are we responding given the knowledge that we have learned from these previous outbreaks? Well, there really hasn't been an outbreak like this one since the Spanish flu of 1918. So the SARS outbreak was containable. SARS wasn't transmissible enough, which is why we were able to stop it at about 8,000 cases. But this virus has already caused 8,000 cases in in multiple different countries, and it's much too transmissible to just stop by by putting some uh, early contact tracing and early isolation measures into place. So knowing that and knowing that we've already failed to stop it, our next priority is making sure that individuals who are vulnerable, so individuals over 60, over 70, our parents and our grandparents, that these individuals receive the best advice to protect themselves, to cancel some social gatherings, to maybe not spend time with the grandchild if the grandchild is showing symptoms and is potentially infected. I think this is where most of our priorities should lie over the next several months. Uh, Excuse me, the numbers when it comes to the fatality rate seems to change depending on which math you're using or which report you're looking at. Are we able to look at something like this when clearly there are a lot of cases out there that are still undetected and get a good idea on what the fatality rate is? That's right. There are two fatality rates that are reported in the news. The case fatality rate, that's the probability of dying if you have symptoms and are are reporting to a hospital. And the infection fatality rate, which is what we care about, the infection fatality rate is the probability of dying if you get infected at all. And that number, the infection fatality rate, right now is estimated to be between 0.5% and 1%. And that doesn't sound like a very high number. It sounds like 99% of people make it, which is true. But 1% of millions and millions of infections is a lot. So if we let this epidemic just run through a country or run through a city, 1% of all infections means we are going to see a large increase in the number of deaths. And, and do you know, how does that compare to a yearly flu fatality rate? The yearly flu infection fatality rates range from 0.02% to 0.05%. So they're about 10 to 20 times lower. Uh, and, and what do you take from, from that information then as far as, again, what the response should be? Well, I think, uh, 
as I mentioned, it's a little bit too late to stop it. So in the U.S., it's spreading in more than 30 states. I, I'm not sure in which Canadian provinces it started to spread, but it sounds like Canada has more than 100 cases as well. So the, the best thing we can do now is to slow it down. So for your listeners, if they follow some of this stuff on Twitter, the best hashtag to follow on Twitter is called Flatten the Curve. And if you manage to uh, do all these things, all, take all these precautionary hygiene measures for a long time, washing your hands, canceling some birthday parties, working from home, and you remove yourself as a link from the epidemic chain, and if other people do that as well, then over a long period of time, we'll slow down and flatten the epidemic. And that basically means that fewer people will get infected. And that's what we should try to achieve over the next six months. Uh, does that also mean, though, uh, stopping travel? Because the only way that this thing is moving from country to country is by people carrying it. That's true. But for most countries, it's too late. So there are 100 countries that have had introduced cases. And there's probably uh, several dozen countries that are already in full-fledged epidemics and community transmission. So I think we're already past that point. All right. Uh, good advice uh, and interesting uh, uh, ways of breaking down the numbers. We will leave it there. Uh, Machek, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. Machek Boni is an associate professor of biology at Pennsylvania State University. Jill Bennett sitting in today. Well, many people are asking questions about exactly how COVID-19 can spread, what they need to do as far as protecting themselves. We've been hearing over and over again from health officials, wash your hands, avoid close contact. This past weekend, uh, health officials were telling us if you're going to a large gathering, say a church or some kind of religious gathering, maybe consider a virtual gathering instead as that is a safer way. What about taking transit? though, and all of the other times during our day when we are up close and around other people. Well, Megan Colley, who is a national online journalist with Smart Living and Entertainment Global News, has written about this and joins me on the line. Megan, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, what have you been writing about or as far as answering these questions about places where unless there is a lockdown or a quarantine, inevitably people will be in close contact with others? Yeah, so I've written about a couple of these key spaces that we tend to encounter in our everyday life. So I'm think, talking things like public transit, gyms, um, high contact locations where a lot of people are coming through in a short period of time. And there's a lot of physical contact. So all of us are touching, you know, the same pole or the same weight for example. Um, and, you know, to your point earlier, what the main thing I've learned is if you keep washing your hands uh, for right now in Canada, these spaces are still relatively safe and you should be fine. Uh, the same type protocol that we're told year in and year out when it's a flu season in that you're touching the same surfaces. If it spreads, something spreads with droplets to protect yourself. Exactly. It's not, you don't need to wear a mask. A mask isn't going to save you, but uh, hygiene and hand washing, proper hand washing, uh, the way to go. Exactly. This should definitely be something that you practice year round, but especially during flu season, which we're just sort of, you know, catching the end of it now. Um, but one thing we also want to be mindful of with coronavirus specifically is making sure that we're not touching these high contact surfaces and then touching our eyes, nose or mouth. These are known as, um, uh, you know, places where we can actually put the coronavirus into our body, mucous membranes. Um, so uh, if we are touching these high contact surfaces, it's important to keep our hands away from our face until we can either use some hand sanitizer or wash our hands too. Uh, you've written about a couple of cases in Ontario where 
where people have tested positive and then it's come out, uh, in one case, a passenger on a GO transit bus, which if anybody has used the GO system, they know how crowded that can be. Uh, There was also somebody who had used public transit, had previously been in Las Vegas, uh, tested positive. Is this causing more concern, do you think, or making people reluctant to use public transit? The feedback I'm hearing from readers is, yes, it is causing concern. And I think, you know, one reason we really wanted to do this story specifically about public transit was because these cases were being reported, uh, but with little context about what that means um, and, you know, what that means for the daily commuter, the person that's always on transit. And I think what we learned in working on this story was that while we there's still much to be learned about coronavirus and how long it can live on certain surfaces, um, what we know right now is that as long as you are not touching your face immediately after touching one of those surfaces, you really should be fine. Um, so, you know, maybe keeping a hand sanitizer in your back pocket if, if that makes you more comfortable. But um, for now, uh, if, if we find out that somebody was riding on transit, you know, five days ago, um, and now they've received a positive diagnosis for coronavirus, taking transit this afternoon on your way home from work, that's, that's okay. Right. And uh, I, and I know in BC, there has been some up protocols as far as cleaning transit. Do you know, is Ontario doing that? Or I, I mean, I would imagine that would give people a little bit more reassurance if the buses and trains and such are being cleaned. Totally. Yes. So um, we heard from uh, public transit agencies from across the country, Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto being some of the big ones. Um, they all have some level of protocol put in place that's new and a bit more ramped up than their everyday uh, protocol in terms of cleaning and disinfecting. That's the big one. You know, these um, buses and trains are typically cleaned, but whether or not they're actually disinfected, that's what we need to be doing to remove the threat of coronavirus from a surface. And that typically requires 60% or more alcohol in these products. Um, all of that information you can find on, on household cleaners and stuff right there on the bottle. So if you are worried about, let's say, your own desk at work, then just double check that before you go and use it. Um, but uh, in terms of the responsibility of the TTC or, you know, who, whatever agency it might be, one thing I've heard a lot of from public health officials is that, um, you know, they're just doing their best. Um, it, it really, in a in an outbreak of this size, um, it really is going to come down to the individual and how effective we can each be in doing our part for keeping ourselves clean, practicing good hand hygiene, practicing good cough and sneeze hygiene, you know, coughing and sneezing into our elbow instead of just out into the, the air around us. Um, things like this will be way more effective at containing the spread than waiting on an agency to be able to disinfect you know, hundreds of buses a day. Like, that's just probably not realistic right now. Uh, You've also written about gyms, because I think people have been questioning that. Also, another place where people are crowded around, maybe not as crowded as transit, but where people gather. Uh, This is not an excuse to stop going to the gym. Unfortunately, no. I was looking forward to maybe having a reason not to go. Um, But uh, one thing we are finding, you know, I had a lot of questions from readers writing into me asking if sweat was something they should be worried about because we do talk a lot about these droplets and whether other bodily fluids can be a way that this is transmitted. 
Sweat is not a worry. Uh, this is not how coronavirus is transmitted from person to person. Um, the main concern here would be the same concern that we have for a place like a public bus, which is that maybe somebody who uh, doesn't know they have coronavirus is at the gym, um, they're coughing into their hands, and then they're touching the equipment, and then you're coming along behind them and touching the same equipment and then touching your face. That is really the main way that this is transmitted. So, um, you know, it's always good practice. Again, if you're a frequent gym goer, you know it's good practice to be wiping down your machines after. But also, I had one expert recommend that maybe you want to keep a little mini hand sanitizer in your pocket just for in between um, different sets of equipment. Um, And just, you know, even if it means you run to the bathroom every couple sets to wash your hands, that doesn't hurt either. And in fact, it's probably a great practice just generally, like we were saying before, even with just the, the basic flu, too. Right. And I guess it too, it it depends on the cleaner, but you would think it would almost be the other end of things. And at at the gym, you're right. If you're following the right protocol, you're wiping down machines after you use them anyway. It's not like you're wiping down the bus after you get off the bus. So you would almost think it would be a cleaner environment. It's interesting. So, you know, every gym has different protocols. Um, There's no regulation for what is actually on offer for for gym goers to use uh, after or during a workout. Um, I think, you know, at some gyms, it could be just straight like soap and water. At other gyms, there might be a bit more of like a disinfectant component there. Um, what, What I'm hearing from public health officials right now is that if you are the manager of a gym or, you know, work at a gym, it might be a good idea to revisit those protocols if you do want to heighten up that that safety factor, um, maybe introducing some more hospital-grade, medical-grade uh, cleaning products into your lineup for each day. Um, but again, it's sort of the same dilemma with the public transit that I was talking about before. Really, what we need is for every single person to be on board with this good hygiene practice to build up that immunity and keep everybody safe. So if you are a gym goer, um, you can't totally rely on your gym to have those products available. It really, you need to take that into your own hands and make sure that you're also being proactive. All right. And the final, the final tip, if you're sick, just stay home. That's the final tip. Exactly. That one, yes, can't be said enough. Megan Colley, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Megan is a national online journalist, smart living and entertainment at Global News. We've been hearing a lot about the coronavirus, COVID-19. It has been dominating the news cycles and rightly so. People concerned about the spread of the virus. We were chatting with a reporter in Rome where the entire country is under lockdown. All of Italy now being told if you do go out, you have to stay a meter away from people around you. Some restaurants open but closing early. Lineups at some of the supermarkets. Not to crazy hoarding like we've seen in some other places, but certainly one of the bigger developments yesterday. So a lot of other stories, though, have been coming forward with people saying, I heard that you had to have a fever. I heard somebody only had a small cough and they recovered and then they were found to be positive for the virus. A lot of questions about what exactly the symptoms are. So let's bring in Jason Tetro, home, a host of the Super Awesome Science Show, author of The Germ Code and The Germ Files. Jason, thanks for being back on the program. Hey, great to be talking with you again. So this does seem to be, it seems like it's been changing a bit. And uh, I guess as, as in the news business, because we're talking about it so much, we can refer to the symptoms, but people have been emailing saying, well, what exactly are they? Uh, do you know, is there a, a definitive list of what the symptoms of this virus are? Well, th- th- there's essentially suspect symptoms. 
um, which unfortunately are flu-like. Um, the way that you know based on symptoms is if you get a more serious infection, which is a pneumonia, and that will give you the, the hint that, yes, indeed, there is something going on. And a pneumonia, of course, is where you feel um, you know, obstructions in your chest when you're breathing. However, as this has evolved, we've learned that, much like all the other respiratory viruses, there are levels of infection, and therefore, there are going to be levels of symptoms. Hmm. So the, and for somebody that would never have had a pneumonia and wouldn't know what a pneumonia felt like, that would kind of throw a bit more confusion into it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a pneumonia, so let's put it this way. If you have something like a common cold or, or something like that, you have a cough, you're sneezing, you're not feeling so great, you might have a fever. If you have, you know, a flu, <clears throat> it feels like, you know, a gorilla is sitting on your chest and you're having a difficult time breathing along with all the other symptoms. When you have pneumonia, not only is it that gorilla is sitting on your chest, but you also feel like you're just not getting enough air because what's happening is that your lungs are being clogged up. And so um, that is having an effect on pretty much everything that you're doing. So you're not only fatigued due to the fever and other things, you're actually fatigued because you're just not getting enough of the oxygen. And that's where, you know, long before that, you're probably wanting to find uh, some kind of medical attention uh, because by the time you've reached that pneumonia stage, uh, it could be pretty serious, especially with this virus. Can, do we know that if, if you, can you be positive for COVID-19 for this virus and not have a fever? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, because remember, uh, positivity means that you have the virus inside of you. Uh, and, and that doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually causing any kind of infection. And, and this is the type of thing that we see where we have carriers who basically have the virus inside of them, but it's not actually doing anything to them. And their immune system is either taking care of it already or there's you know, no symptoms happening. And I think what had happened is when this first came out, we heard about such dramatic cases of people with, uh, you know, needing IC uh, intensive care and, uh, you know, and dying that no one really considered that this was just like every other respiratory virus and that you might actually be a carrier. And we're slowly starting to see that happening. And this is one of the reasons why there's this sort of issue of is it, gonna, is it eventually going to become uncontrolled as a result of the fact that we're just not going to know who's actually infected. Hmm. And I think that's what people are finding a, a little bit confusing, too, in that we've been told that because this is a brand new virus, we don't have immunity to it because we've never been exposed to it before. Mm -hmm. So people would think the minute you get it, or if you are exposed to it, if it's in your body, uh, th there's the assumption that you will get sick. Well, if it went into your bloodstream, yeah, that's how it would work. But remember, your lungs have their own level of protection. So before you even get to the cells, you've got that mucus, you've got the air surface interface or air liquid interface, and then eventually you get down to the cells. So essentially what's happening is that, you know, you may be only exposed to a small number of these viruses, and as a result, they're not going to be able to cause a huge infection inside of you. Um, it's only when they get into those cells, it's only when they start to multiply and start infecting other cells, that's where you get that incubation period of five to seven days. And then at that point, you start getting symptoms. So anytime within the moment that you have exposure to the point where you have symptoms, you may have the virus inside of you and never actually know it. Hmm. And, and that's a, an interesting one, too, because we often don't talk about the amount of the virus, is if mm -hmm. you get exposed to a, a, a droplet rather than, say, you're living with somebody who has it and you're exposed to a lot of it, the, the, how does the amount of the virus, uh, virus play into it? 
We don't yet know what the minimal infectious dose is, what we call it, uh, happens to be for this particular virus. However, for most of these respiratory viruses, you're looking at around 1,000 viruses, which is a fair number if someone happens to be really infected, has lots of symptoms, and gets a drop onto you, because that drop may have something like 10 to 100,000 in it. So you definitely don't want that drop getting inside of you. Um, the other thing is that you have to somehow get that sort of thousand or whatever inside of you, and it has to go into your respiratory tract, down your lungs, to a point where it can actually do the infection. And so that's also sort of something that we have to think about is how is it possible that we're shedding enough of this virus for people to get sick, but it's also somehow getting into the body far enough down so there has to be some kind of transfer or transmission that's going on that we're still not quite sure about. And so this is one of the reasons why we're seeing um, a lot of these actions that are being taken, these measures to be able to prevent people from coming into contact with each other. And, and is that does that make it more kind of bewildering seeing the community transfers? Or I mean, it, it seems like, and I know we're we're kind of beating up on the cruise ship industry, but it makes sense. Everyone's on a cruise ship if you're touching the same surfaces and it's manifesting mm-hmm. there. A different than somebody who who has been a community case, and there's a case in BC where we still don't know where that person got it. Yeah, I mean, if you can trace it. That's great. And, and as much as people, you know, are beaten down on cruise ships, and the last time we talked, I said I probably would never take one, the fact is, is that it actually gives you a really nice origin point, a nucleus, to be able to identify tracers. However, when you start seeing people who have come into contact with individuals that either have no linkage back to cruise ships or China or some other hotspot, um, it becomes troubling because what that means is that this may actually be spreading, perhaps even under the radar with people who are not showing symptoms and therefore increasing in size. Now, I don't think this is happening so much here in Canada, but I do believe this is happening more in the States. Right. And do you take some, some I, I guess, is it a positive thing that we're now seeing in China, which has taken probably the most uh, uh, severe actions to quarantine people or to stop the movement of people, the number of cases has slowed down considerably there, uh, as opposed to, say, Italy, places where we're still seeing the spread. Does that show that by stopping movement of people and by stopping that we can actually get the upper hand? Oh, yeah. But I mean, these are actions that are way too late that are essentially extending the uh, curve of uh, transmission way too long. I mean, for China, it was January 18th where they had this Wuhan festival. If China had actually told everybody this was spread human to human, like we now know, I don't think they would have gone through with the festival and probably they would never have had the problem that they have right now. Same thing with Italy. Um, there was some kind of event that was going on, and unfortunately, this led to the virus getting into a number of places where they had high susceptibility. In other words, people who are very high at risk of having severe symptoms, and then that just spread like wildfire. So the fact is that if you initially know that, yes, it's there, and you know that it can spread from human to human in ways that we still can't track, the best thing to do is to start getting that social distancing in place. Now, does that mean you have to cancel events like South by Southwest, which has 500,000 people? Mm, that's, a, that's a tough one to call. But it does mean that you can at least have some control over that, get people to quarantine, isolate, prevent that type of um, interaction with individuals, uh, and, and you might be able to essentially um, 
prevent it, control it, contain it without having to do these massive quarantines like we've seen now in China, Italy, and, you know, Austin, Texas. And so just before I let you go, as far as symptoms, because I still think there are people that if you have a cold, maybe even if you have a mild flu, and if you're concerned about this, which a lot of people are, at what point do you know or do you, what point should you be concerned that maybe it's not just a cold or a mild flu, you could have this virus? I would like you to think of it a different way. If you have symptoms of something that seems to be either a cold or the flu, contact your healthcare professional. Right now, the COVID-19 test is being included in most of the respiratory virus checks that are being done, which means that if there is a concern, they may invite you to come in. You may not have the medical or travel history or any of that type of thing, and they may just simply say, "Mm, keep yourself monitored. But if you do have that, they'll ask you to come in and you'll get a test. This is the way that we maintain control. You yourself take responsibility for your hygiene and as well as your health. And if you do feel that there is a concern, reach out to your healthcare professionals. That's what they're there for. Don't go into the emergency rooms or anything like that. Just make the phone call. And then at that point, you can work with them, the, the healthcare professionals, to be able to identify whether or not there is a risk. And if there is, you'll find out sooner than later. All right. That is good advice. Jason, thank you so much. I'm sure we will talk to you again, but thanks for your time today. It was a pleasure. Take care. Jason Tetro is the host of the Super Awesome Science Show, also the author of The Germ Code and The Germ Files. Well, yesterday we heard from health officials that not only were they advising against cruise ship travel, also saying that talks were underway to perhaps make a decision to postpone the cruise ship season here in BC. And we've already seen other moves taken, the TED conference postponed, and some talks, concerns about any other large gatherings going ahead. Well, what would it mean if the cruise ship season was postponed and if we started seeing conferences on mass being being cancelled. What would that mean to the economy? Bridget Anderson joins me now, the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade CEO. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, Jill. Uh, so I would imagine uh, the Board of Trade has been looking at this and looking at the numbers. What would it mean if we just look at cruise ships and if that season is postponed? Well, there's no question that this situation continues to evolve, Jill. And along with uh, this developing situation, it brings more uncertainty and more concern and more increasing challenges for business uh, around the trade and tourism uh, industry alone. It brings in an incredible injection into our economy. And so uh, looking at the delay of that, that can mean hundreds of thousands of dollars of delay into our into our local economy. And really, um, you know, there's there's many things that businesses are doing. We're speaking to our members. I'm speaking to other boards of trade across Canada, speaking to other chambers of commerce, and and we're all hearing this uh, this increasing concern and uncertainty about what the impacts are going to be long term. Have you heard from Transport Canada when you might uh, have a decision or when a decision might be made on the cruise ship season? I mean, this would be something that the cruise ship industry itself would hear first, and we would then be speaking to our members. Um, as we're hearing from all of the officials, um, the situation continues to to evolve and change, not just day by day, but hour by hour. And so um, businesses are needing to be both proactive and reactive in this time. Uh, and what about the idea, again, we heard that the TED conference has been postponed postponed because of concerns about the, the COVID-19 virus and people traveling. Uh, have you heard of any other conferences that have been cancelled? 
Well, I have been um, speaking to a number of our members, and all of them are taking a look at not only their travel policies, but policies about gathering people, and event uh, organizers are doing the same thing. I've had lots of conversations uh, over the last 48 or 72 hours, and, and everybody is really looking to the authorities to take guidance and direction from the authorities around events and, and gathering people and conferences. Uh, and then also it's really trying to find that balance between uh, responsibility to your employees, to your stakeholders, to your customers and clients and, and, and other folks um, that your organization is involved with, but also then being prudent as well. And so the best advice that I am hearing that many organizations are following is what's coming from Canadian and BC officials and, and taking lead from that. And as we know, that guidance and direction changes on a regular basis. It's got to be a, a difficult time, though, or, or a stressful time when we're dealing with, it wasn't that long ago we were talking about blockades on railways that were having a huge economic impact. Now we have this virus, which I think is having more of an impact than we anticipated in the beginning. There's no question um, that there is a great deal of concern. I mean, I think we saw it yesterday in the markets, uh, you know, reflecting what was happening with oil prices, but also the concerns that we're seeing globally around the coronavirus. So, yeah, and I, I think the concern really um, is both um, short term because we're not entirely sure how this uh, how this situation is going to evolve, but also long term. And so, as you know, a member of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade and a voice for the business community, we are and will be speaking to government about what they can do to support, particularly small and medium businesses, as they're feeling the impact. So we heard. Yesterday from Minister Morneau that they're looking at any possible kinds of policies that might be able to support small and medium businesses. And we certainly encourage the government to look at that as they're uh, about to to deliver their budget um, to see what kind of help could be given um, to to organizations in this uh, uncertain time. What could be or what would be some possibilities do you think that could be offered? Well, there are a number of things that the government uh, could be doing uh, around supporting organizations to help uh, in this this uh, time, and and perhaps that's on supporting uh, employees if, if if organizations have to deal with a lot of staff absences and employees away, or is there some funding that is available to help around with business continuity? I mean, every business I think right now is doing exactly what we're doing at the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. We're working on our business continuity and planning, and we're looking at the potential impacts not only on our business, but also on our members and and also on the people that we interact with. So the government has some um, opportunities to take a look at that, uh, particularly the federal government that's delivering its its budget, and I I know that's uh, top of mind for for the, the folks in Ottawa. Uh, what are you hearing from your members? Like you said, you're having conversations with the members of the, the Board of Trade and, and members of the, the business community. In that, Some are saying that they think that this, this directive to avoid cruise ship travel and perhaps even postpone the season is overreacting given the number of cases that we've seen so far. Well, I think that's what's so difficult, Jill, is there's just so much uncertainty. And in this age of a lot of information, there's also sometimes conflicting information. So it's really important to look to the authorities who who have the most up-to-date and reliable information. But some of our members are, are talking to us 
not only about um, their their own employees, whether they might be away because they're not feeling well or members of their family aren't feeling well. Um, they are looking at whether they are disrupting their travel plans to conferences to go visit customers. Also looking at possible disruptions in, in services like information and events, as I mentioned, also in their supply chains. You mentioned the blockades, and we're still not fully recovered from um, the disruptions to the supply chain there, given China was shutting down a lot of its factories for a period of time. So this is uh, sort of a double whammy, if you will. So I think as we continue on and the situation continues to evolve, we're going to know much more clearly in in a few weeks' time what those longer-term impacts uh, could look like. And, And really, um, members are just uh, asking for um, any kind of information that people can share, and that's what we're trying to do is share resources and information and, and any planning that can be done to, to mitigate some of the impacts or, or perceived impacts at this point. All right. And I guess on the, on the brighter side, too, when we're talking about the cancellation of conferences, I think we're also seeing the word postponed. And there's a, the, the idea there is like, yes, this is happening now. But once it's contained or once there's some positive movement here, it's not as though everything's going to be shut down. It's going to be a pause and then we're going to get back on track. I'm really glad you mentioned that, Jill, because we will all get through this um, at some point and we will all recover. Um, and so it, it is a postponement rather than a cancellation for, for many events. I mean, I recognize that some have maybe canceled for the year, but they'll come back next year. But for many of our members, they're, they're looking at postponing events or postponing conferences or postponing travel to go see customers which means um, that things will come back to normal at some point, and we can only hope that that is going to be in the very near future. All right, we will leave it there. Uh, Bridget Anderson, uh, CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jill. All right, we've been talking a lot about fears of the spread of COVID-19. We are going to continue that conversation. But also, coming up on the program, we do have some other news to get to. We are going to check in with the BC Securities Commission. Big changes coming to the BC Securities Act as of March 27th. And a new poll that takes a look at whether or not Canadians think we will still be a monarchy in 20 years. You might be surprised by some of the results. Right now, though, we're going to continue the conversation about what is being done. Just before the break, we were talking with Bridget Anderson at the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade about conferences being postponed, the very real possibility that the cruise ship season in BC could be postponed because of fears of the spread of the virus. We've also been talking about places where large groups of people gather and are in close proximity and schools are definitely one of those. Let's bring in Scott Fehrenbacher, Senior Vice President of External Relations at Trinity Western University. Scott, Thanks so much for being here. Good afternoon, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, now, not only are you uh, with Trinity Western, but you also have a very personal story about this because you are Spencer Fehrenbacher's father, and people will remember Spencer as being one of those quarantined on the Diamond Princess. Um, indeed I am, and um, I, I had the crash course that no father wants to take on all, the, uh, all things COVID-19. I would imagine so. So uh, we know uh, Spencer has been here. He's back home. Uh, But uh, in your role at the university then, and I I would imagine you've drawn from what happened with your son, the university is now taking uh, this uh, this step of going virtual. Yeah, so we depend like um, all other universities on campus visitation, right? So students who are looking for their options of where they 
want to go to university, they're, uh, they, um, you know, routinely will find a opportunity to visit that campus. So our most important uh, weekend visitation program of the year is two weeks away. And um, we take the well-being of our students very seriously here. And so we're in the middle of that. What do we do? Our business depends on this. Our opportunity to bring enrollment depends on this. But so does the health of our students on how we manage it. So what we decided to do is make some lemonade out of lemons and transition it into a virtual reality event so that, excuse me, we're going to send the campus to our students instead of expecting the students to come to our campus. And um, it's a risky, it was a risky move, but we've had tremendous um, support and immediate impact. Uh, We've almost, uh, we're up 50% in our numbers just in 24 hours. Hmm. And and just to be clear, have there been any cases of COVID-19 on the campus? I'm glad you asked. There have been no cases of COVID-19 on either our Langley or our Richmond campuses, and that's exactly the way we want to keep it. All right. And when you talk about this, uh, then inviting people, because I think one of the concerns also was uh, you would have been invited people, inviting people who maybe were going through uh, Seattle or from parts of Washington state where there have been cases. So instead, how do you actually go about offering up the school through this virtual way? Well, we're going to uh, do about two months of work in the next two weeks, and we're creating the information that they would normally want to get, both specific content on uh, finances and on classes and, and, and professors. We're going to be doing this through a mix of live and recorded content. Through that recorded content, some of it's going to be VR content that we will literally send VR glasses out to those people who register. They'll get it in the mail with a number of other things and a few little surprises in that box. They'll open it up and uh, they will be able to connect with us and see beautiful Vancouver, see our campuses in a way that's 360 degrees. It's the best we can do uh, given the circumstances. And I think it'll be an, uh, an effective way to manage this situation for the benefit of everybody. And what if, if there are people that still want to physically come to the campus then, are they being told no? I'm glad you asked that as well. No, our individual campus visitation uh, program remains open. We would be happy to host anybody on campus on an individual basis, and those appointments remain open. But bringing in hundreds of people from around North America and even overseas is a different story. And I think it's, it's certainly consistent with what the BC Health Authority has recommended. And uh, we feel like it's the best way to manage this situation. And for students of the campus that are still going to school, is it take is the campus taking any measures as far as public gatherings or uh, increased hand sanitizing stations or anything as far as as students who are are physically still there? We have a wellness center on campus that has taken this very seriously. We have hand sanitizing stations all over campus and across the residential areas. We have. Um, put into place uh, uh, personal distancing conversations and uh, a number of things are in with the works here at Trinity Western, all of which are putting the health and wellness of our students foremost. And I would imagine, and again, you can draw from personal experience, but the message that we've heard over and over again, uh, this message would also be to the students that if you don't feel well, if you have any symptoms of anything, stay home. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, 
you, people say, well, this is all based on fear. Well, that's fine. Fear is real. If you're a parent and your student is in our responsibility, we take that very seriously. And you might say, well, no one under the age of so-and-so really gets hurt with this. Well, whether that's true or not, the truth is there's a great deal of fear. As a parent myself, I know what that's like. And so we're taking this very seriously to protect our campus, our faculty, staff, and students. And we're doing this in a way that's kind of looking at the glass half full. How can we make, how can we make this still a positive impact and still manage the situation? All right. Uh, interesting uh, solution. Interesting uh, way that the, uh, the university is dealing with this. Uh, Scott, we will leave it at that. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Scott Fahrenbacher is Senior Vice President of External Relations at Trinity Western University, also the dad to Spencer Fahrenbacher, who was on The Diamond Princess. Thanks for being with us today. We are going to take a little break from talking about COVID-19. We will talk about it a little bit more in the final hour of the program. But there is some other news out there today. And one of the stories has to do with some big changes coming to the BC Securities Act. They were introduced in the fall. We now know they will officially be coming into effect on March 27th. So what does this mean for the BC Securities Act? We are joined on the line now by Peter Brady, Executive Director at the BC Securities Commission. Thanks so much for taking some time with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. What are the biggest changes? Because there were a few things that, that we knew the government was bringing in as far as changing the rules, tightening the rules. What, in your mind, is the biggest change? Well, one of the most uh, prominent changes, although there are many, is uh, major improvements to our ability to collect money from wrongdoers and return funds to victims when assets are available. And so it changes, one of the changes that I'd looked at too, so it changes the, the limit on penalties. It used to be 15 years. Was that something that, that was coming into, that was an issue? Yes, absolutely. So um, the BCSC has a number of uh, unpaid fines, but uh, we're unable to go after them because the limitation period on those fines has expired. Under these changes, there's going to be no limitation period on the sanctions that the BCSC issues. Meaning anything that's happened at any point, if somebody says this was a wrongdoing or it's been proven to be a wrongdoing, is fair game? From this point forward, that's right. So instead of after, you know, six years or, sorry, 10 or 15 years, the, uh, the penalty has expired, we can now um, go and collect forever. But this is going forward. This doesn't apply to everything that's happened in the past, but going forward, we'll be able to collect those penalties forever. And what about how people used to get around the penalties? So, I mean, if somebody has done something shady, they're probably going to do something else shady to try and get away with it. Those things involving transferring property to somebody else, whether it's a relative, whether it's a spouse, a husband or a wife, putting them in somebody else's names. Does this crack down on that? Absolutely. So this is one of the areas where BC is going to have some of the strongest powers in Canada. So under these uh, new legislative amendments, we are going to be able to collect money from people who transfer it under value to family members or third parties, and nobody else in Canada has that ability yet. Uh, so why is that? Do you think that nobody else has gone down that route? Well, I think it's partly a reflection of our government's focus on white-collar crime. So uh, when they formed government, they asked us and said, what, what are some of the things that we could do to, to crack down on white-collar crime? And this is certainly one of the uh, things that we, we discussed with them.
And is it because we have so much white-collar crime in B.C.? Well, we, uh, unfortunately, there's securities violations um, across Canada. And, um, but this is really our government being creative and uh, looking at some of the challenges that we face when assets have been, um, you know, hidden. And this uh, really is a proactive step that allows us to get money that's, that's gone to a family member or a third party under value. Uh, this uh, kind of was put into the spotlight. There was a post-media news investigation that looked at this and they publicized and published the fact that I think it was half a billion dollars in penalties had not been collected. Why did it take so long to get government attention, do you think, or to get attention to this matter that there was so much money out there that people were being caught, they were being penalized, but then nothing was happening? So the, uh, the BCSC's uh, collections records, no secret, it's been out there for a long time, and there's been actually quite a bit of news coverage of that uh, over the years. Um, and actually, the half a billion, a large portion of that will never be collected. The limitation period is old, it's expired. We're talking about people that are in jail, um, often in another country. They're making, paying under criminal restitution orders. So um, half a billion is, is not quite the, uh, the real amount that's outstanding. But... Uh, you know, this government came in with a priority on uh, white-collar crime, and uh, they have given us some proactive tools to address the approximately $150 million that is outstanding. Uh, one of the other changes I understand, too, is uh, being able to seize money from registered retirement savings plans. Uh, do you think that will make a difference? Absolutely. Um, currently, uh, registered plans are exempt from seizure under the laws of most uh, provinces, and uh, sometimes these fraudsters have assets there, and I think it's frustrating for victims that uh, they've been defrauded, and yet the fraudster still has their retirement account intact. So uh, we certainly will be looking at uh, all of our outstanding files where there's money owing and searching for, for registered plans so that we can return it to victims. Is that a big portion of it, though? I'm just thinking because it's regulated on how much money you can even put into these plans. So is that somewhere that's very common for fraudsters to save their money? Well, some of these people have been uh, saving over a lifetime. Uh, maybe they've made some money in the market and uh, they can have substantial sums of money um, saved in their retirement plans. And, you know, part of this is it's very hard to return money. Most of the time, the money is gone. It's not even available. But I think what's often important for investors is that we get whatever there is. Whatever we can get, we try to get it and we try to give it back to the investors. Absolutely. Uh, who are, I mean, is there a profile of the fraudster? Is it people who are opposing as investment advisors? Is it people who are duping people by lying to them? Who is it that's doing this? You know, there is no real standard uh, profile. Um, and, uh, you know, there's some people that for, for whatever reason, they just, their conscience doesn't bother them and they are willing to lie to get money. And uh, we, we can't profile people that way. I would say, though, that, um, you know, there is, there is a large portion of, of fraudsters in, uh, in the outstanding penalties, but um, some of it is actually industry um, people or companies as well. So it's actually um, a large, it's, there's a different, um, you know, spectrum of people that the BCSC um, actually regulates. And one other thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, it expands uh, the powers that the BCSC has to investigate and to obtain information, be it from people in other areas. Uh, was that something that was missing before? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, the uh, I, I think you're referring to the the criminal investigation powers, and um, so currently, when we go to investigate a potential breach of the Securities Act criminally, and there's a huge appetite out there for us to do that, we don't have the same powers that. Um, exists under the criminal code to go and get documents from places like banks or financial institutions. And, you know, often, given the kind of uh, prosecutions we do, if you can't get the financial records, you cannot prove the case. So we, we hope these new powers will help us to prosecute the Securities Act. So if it's a criminal case, then, do police not also get involved? Uh, police uh, sometimes do get involved. And, um, you know, we work very cooperatively with uh, Vancouver Police, RCMP, and other police agencies across the province. But does this give the, the BCSC then more power in that you wouldn't, where a, where a police force would have had those powers in the past and you maybe were relying on them in those scenarios you don't need to anymore? Oh, so, um, yeah, now, now the BCSC is able to use these powers in relation to Securities Act investigations, and, um, but we can also investigate uh, securities-related criminal code offenses and use the powers in the criminal code. So, um, and so we, we now have what, uh, what we've always had in criminal code investigations. Now we can use them in Securities Act investigations. It's not really a matter of, you know, BC or BCSC or police, um, you know, not having powers. All right. And one other uh, quick question, whistleblowers. I understand there is better protection as well uh, for whistleblowers now. Uh, That's right. So the Act basically provides the framework for us to adopt a whistleblower program. And that means that um, if somebody comes forward with um, information that we can use in one of our investigations or prosecutions, then the, the legislation protects that person from retaliation. And with some of the cases we do, it's really, really important for us to have information from somebody on the inside who actually saw what was happening. So we think that with these whistleblower protections, that more people will be able to come forward and give us the information we need to crack down on white-collar crime. All right, uh, we will leave it there. Peter Brady, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. All right, uh, Peter Brady is the Executive Director at the BC Securities Commission. Again, those new rules uh, introduced, they will be officially in place on March 27th. Taking a look at uh, some federal news, the Federal Ethics Commissioner has ruled there is no reason to believe that former Privy Council Clerk Michael Hornick broke the conflict of interest law and that during the SNC-Lavalin affair. The report has now been released and the Commissioner says he will not be undertaking a full examination of any of the allegations, or can, and he now considers that matter to be closed. So let's bring in Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, to talk a little bit more about this. Duff, what are your thoughts on the fact that uh, Michael Wernick basically has been cleared? Well, this isn't a new ruling, actually, um, because the Ethics Commissioner ruled that... Uh, same thing last August. He let uh, Michael Wernick, the former Privy Council clerk, and seven other uh, public office holders off the hook for doing the same thing that Trudeau did, um, trying to influence the Attorney General to stop the prosecution of um, the of SNC-Lavalin. 
and for bribery. And um, so this is not, he, he refers to his old ruling and says, for the same reasons as my ruling last August, I'm not finding Michael Wernick guilty now. I'm not even looking into his, uh, his uh, actions further. And does that strike you as strange that when we're talking about this and talking about the report that was released in August, which found that Justin Trudeau did violate the Conflict of Interest Act by using his position of authority to try and influence Jody Wilson-Raybould, that on the one hand, he can be found to have violated the act, but Michael Wernick was not? It's not only strange, and not only strange about with regard to Michael Wernick, but also with regard to the seven other people that Jody Wilson-Raybould said tried to influence her and pressure her to stop the prosecution. And it's not only strange, it's wrong. It's legally incorrect, and that's why Democracy Watch has filed a case in the Federal Court of Appeal and is challenging that ruling. And challenging it on what grounds? On the grounds that it was wrong. Uh, They all did the same thing as Prime Minister Trudeau. The rules applied to them, just like they apply to Trudeau. And they broke the same rules that Trudeau did, so they all should have been found guilty. Uh, Mr. Dion found, though, or concluded, I believe, in that report that he said that those who acted under the direction or under the authority of the Prime Minister could not have influenced the Attorney General simply by virtue of their position. How do you respond to that? Uh, It's a ridiculous ruling because Section 9 says you can't try to influence someone else in a way that improperly furthers someone else's or someone else's interests, uh, some entity's interests. So it was improper to pressure the Attorney General to further SNC-Lavalin's interests because the Attorney General, there's a rule, it's called the Shawcross Doctrine, a legal rule that says you can't pressure the Attorney General about decisions concerning prosecutions. So that was improper for everyone to do it. And they all tried to influence her. It doesn't say anything in the rule that you have to be able to influence the person you're trying to influence. It just says you can't try to influence anyone if you are improperly furthering uh, a person's or entity's interests. So he just made this up, this this condition that, hey, they can't influence her because they don't have power over her. Therefore, they can't be found guilty of trying to influence her. But that's not what the rule says. The rule says clearly You cannot try to influence anyone if you are improperly furthering another's uh, interests or your own interests or your family or friend's interests. Uh, Those are also included in the rule. There's no exceptions to that rule. And he made up an exception to let them all off the hook for doing exactly the same thing that he found the prime minister guilty of doing. That's why we've gone to court. It's just, it's a ridiculous situation. It's also a very dangerous uh, decision. And here's why. What it means is ministers can just, and the prime minister, can just, you know, quietly suggest to their staff that they might want something done, a decision of someone else influenced. What he said is only the prime minister could be found guilty of doing that. So it's fine for other ministers to do that and fine for them to direct their staff to go ahead and do that. Uh, Indirectly, of course. But if they were operating under his authority, then only the minister would possibly be found guilty. But all of them would likely deny that the minister had ever told them to do it. So it essentially says, ministers, go ahead and have your staff do all the dirty work that you're not allowed to do. And the act does not apply to them. The act doesn't say that. The law says the rules apply to everyone. There's no exceptions. 
Does it matter at all, do you think, that in the end, SNC-Lamelin did not get the remediation agreement that the company was looking for? Uh, no, if they had, then that would have been even more clear evidence that we, than we already have that all these people were obstructing justice, attempting to stop a prosecution. Um, the thing with conflict of interest rules are they are there to stop anyone from getting something. And if they do get it, then it means the, that uh, the politician or public official not only violated the conflict of interest rules, they also violated the criminal code, breach of trust, or taking a bribe, or uh, some way of, of unduly influencing people that crosses the criminal line, because you're actually giving someone the reward that they want, uh, some lobbyist or big business. So the ethics rules are there to prevent that from happening. And it means, and what they say is, you can't even try to give someone or some big business what they want uh, if it's improper for you to do so, if they've given you a gift or done you a favor, or if you're trying to influence somebody who it's illegal for you to influence, and it is illegal to influence the attorney general and prosecution decisions. All right. So they all should have been found guilty. It doesn't matter that SNC-Lavalin didn't get what it wants. All right. So we'll have to leave it there. We are right out of time. Uh, Duff, good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'll keep you updated as the case goes through the court. All right. Sounds good. That is Duck, Duff Conacher, with, uh, co-founder with Democracy Watch. But a quick shift in plans because I want to bring on Dana Larson. As you know, Dana Larson is one of the organizers of the annual 420 event in Vancouver. And there's been some question with the continued spread of COVID-19 if that event should or will go ahead. So Jane, uh, Dana has joined us on the line now. Dana, thanks so much uh, for being available. Hey, my pleasure. So what's happening with this year's event? Well, we've still got time to make some final decisions, so we're not totally sure what's going to be happening. Uh, We reached out to Vancouver Coastal Health, and we're waiting to hear back. We haven't cancelled or changed anything yet, but we're aware that that could very much be a possibility we're going to have to deal with. Uh, You know, at the very least, we'd be discouraging joint sharing, uh, putting in more water cleaning, hand cleaning stations and and that kind of thing. Uh, The intent for this year was for it to be smaller than it was last year. We're not planning on any Cypress Hill level performances and it's on a Monday, so it'd be less busy. But we're really right now, we're just kind of in a wait and see status. Uh, We're hoping we don't have to cancel, but if we do have to cancel or possibly maybe postpone and try to put it on later in the summer or something, uh, we're really looking at all possibilities and just waiting to see what happens and what unfolds. So if Vancouver Coastal Health came back to you and said, look, this is an event where every year uh, people are taken to emergency rooms, it does put a bit of a strain on a healthcare system that's now dealing with this virus. If they came back to you and said, please cancel or at least postpone, would you? Well, yeah, we, we try to follow what, what they recommend and work with Vancouver Coastal Health. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, there, there are some people that go to the emergency room. Last year, nobody was actually admitted to the hospital. Some people went to the emergency room. So, you know, I, I don't know if that's, that's so much the focus as it is as to whether it would be a nexus for contagion, people spreading it. That's more what our concern is. But so I reached out to Vancouver Coastal Health a few days ago. I haven't heard back from them yet. I've actually just tried to contact them again today. And, uh, yeah, we'll just see what happens. But our, our intent with this event is always to be responsible and to put it on in a responsible way. And if there's going to be risks involved that, that can't be dealt with, then, uh, yeah, we would take appropriate action. And when you say you anticipate it's going to be smaller this year, how many people are you expecting? 
Well, it's hard to say. We had over 150,000 people last year. I imagine it would still be a, a large event, but I th- you know, some of that crowd was definitely there for Cypress Hill and everything. It'd probably be, you know, 100,000 or, or less this year, but that's still a pretty large event, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, we'll just, we're, right now we're in a waiting mode. We're just going to see what happens. We're still planning as if it's going to be happening, but we're very aware of the circumstances and the possibility that we're going to have to uh, end it this year or, or stop it this year or, possibly try to reschedule until later in the summer. I mean, 420 is April 20th. It's a fixed date. So moving it, you know, having 420 in July, I'm not sure if that's a possibility or not. So right now we're just looking at all the options and trying to to figure out what to do and and seeing how things unfold. Uh, But we haven't made any final decisions yet. We still have time to do that. Uh, Do you think, though, encouraging people to not share joints, to just encouraging people where you're still going to see 100,000 people gather, is that enough? Well, I don't know. Uh, that's how we're waiting to hear back and then see what happens. Uh, you know, we don't, we want to be responsible. We don't want the headlines to be COVID-19 spread at 420. And we just don't want that to, to happen. We want to make sure everyone who comes is, is safe and is able to have a good time. So, you know, I know some other events have been canceled. I know a lot of things haven't been canceled. I'm not sure if they're canceling hockey games or other large scale events in Vancouver either. Right. So we're still waiting to see what everyone else does and then where things are at. So what will it take then if there's a, a bigger outbreak, if there is a certain number of cases? Because it's not as though you're going to be screening for people coming into 420 to see if they're healthy or not. Uh, it's, it's really to see what other events do. There's still a lot of big events that are happening in Vancouver. You know, not everything has been canceled by any means. Uh, and we haven't heard back from Vancouver Coastal Health and their opinions yet. Uh, like I said, as far as I know, um, uh, big sporting events and other large events like that are still happening. So, you know, if those start getting canceled as well, that would certainly be a signal for us. But those, uh, sure, but those events don't have 100,000 people in a field in extremely close contact. Well, they have a lot of people in a stadium in extremely close contact. But, you know, like I said, we haven't made any decisions. We're, we're certainly amenable to the possibility that we're going to have to cancel this year, and we're willing to accept that if that's what it comes to. Uh, we still have about six weeks, and so we've got, you know, I'm sure we'll make a final decision uh, before the end of March and give everybody some notice, but we just haven't, you know, we're, we're hoping we're going to be able to pull it off, but we're very aware that the, the, the possibility is we're going to have to cancel this year and, and we'll make a final decision in the next couple of weeks. And when you talk about cancel versus postpone, you must understand if you postponed it and had this in July on Sunset Beach in the smack of sun, summer, that's going to anger a lot of people. Uh, what, what, what do you so, mean? I mean, the beaches are even more used by the public in July as opposed to April. And that's when, I mean, that's schools out. That's the height of families using the beaches. People aren't going to be happy with you guys taking over that area. Oh, you mean just in general, regardless of whether it's COVID. Absolutely. It's COVID regardless of whether, then. yeah, there's a virus uh, well, or not. We, well, well, we have the right to use public spaces, and actually summertime would be better because the problem with April is it's kind of muddy, and so the grass gets a little bit squishy in April, but in uh, July, the grass is quite solid. So, you know, we have to see what other events are happening and what's going on, and it, it's really up in the air right now. We, we've got a lot of thinking and, and planning and decision-making to do, and we'll have some final ideas in a couple of weeks, but... Uh, you know, we're really hoping we can still do 420 this year, but we're certainly aware of the risks and what's going on and, and want to make sure it's a safe event and that we're not uh, causing problems or spreading disease. But, uh, you know, uh, we haven't really made these final decisions yet. It's, it's really still a, a changing situation, and we're just monitoring and, and trying to figure out what to do. All right. We'll leave it there, Dana. Look forward to the update, and thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. Dana Larson, longtime 420 organizer.